Good evening and welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you live from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Clotin in Washington, D.C. I wasn't surprised. It's everything I've seen, um, you know, since the beginning of this whole episode with um, Niger, because really and truly that's what that's where the big breakup in ECOWAS started. ECOWAS left sanctions on Niger following the military takeover in the West African country. We have taken a, a view that we should appeal the, the judgment to the Court of Appeal. And, and such an appeal is as of right. So we, we, we want to exercise that right to appeal it to the Court of Appeal. The Botswana High Court says former President Serete Kama Ian Kama is a fugitive from justice. We're also taking action against three individuals, specifically in connection with the death of Alexei Navalny. Uh, the prison warden, the regional prison head, the deputy director of the Federal Penitentiary Service. And U.S. President Joe Biden announces 500 new sanctions on Russia as the world marks two years since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Those stories and more coming up on Nightline Africa. West Africa's regional bloc ECOWAS on Saturday lifted some of the sanctions it imposed on Niger after Laos's military coup that ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. The sanctions, including border closures, a no-fly zone and asset freezes, will be lifted immediately, according to the ECOWAS President Omar Aliou Toure. For VOA, Timothy Obiezu reports from the Nigerian capital, Abuja. The announcement followed an emergency heads of state summit in Abuja just days after Yakubu Gowan, a former Nigerian head of state and founding member of ECOWAS, made a plea to the bloc on behalf of the region. ECOWAS said its decision to lift economic sanctions imposed on Niger was based on humanitarian consideration of the plight of the region's more than 400 million people in the countries represented by the bloc. The measures, including the freezing of Niger's assets in ECOWAS central banks and the suspension of financial transactions between ECOWAS states and Niger, were lifted. ECOWAS President Omar Aliou Toure spoke at the summit Saturday. The authority has resolved to lift with immediate effect closure of land and air borders between ECOWAS countries and Niger. No-fly zone of all commercial flights to and from Niger is to be lifted. Suspension of all commercial and financial transactions between ECOWAS member states and Niger. Freezing of all service transactions, including utility services, is to be lifted. This decision is based on humanitarian considerations. ECOWAS also lifted the travel ban on government officials and their families and reversed Niger's suspension from regional financial aid. But the regional bloc said targeted individual and political sanctions like limited access to ECOWAS summits and ministerial sessions will not be removed. The regional bloc also called for the immediate and unconditional release of ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. The authority notes with regret that despite several efforts, former President Mohamed Bazoum remains in detention. 
A no plan for transition has been developed by the CNSP government of Niger. The authority calls for the immediate release of His Excellency Mohamed Bazoum. West Africa is struggling to control a wave of military takeovers and political crisis in recent years. Last July, the military overthrew Bazoum in a widely criticized military coup, prompting sanctions, including the threat of military invasion from ECOWAS. But ECOWAS was criticized for being unfair with its sanctions on Niger, the toughest imposed on any errant member state. On Saturday, ECOWAS also lifted financial and economic sanctions on Mali and Guinea and invited the countries alongside Niger and Burkina Faso for a technical and security meeting with the bloc. Nigerian President Bola Tinubu said during the summit, the ECOWAS meeting came at a critical juncture for the region. Times like this demand that we take difficult but courageous decisions that put the plight of our people at the center of our deliberations. Democracy is nothing more than the political framework, and this is why we must re-examine our current approach to the quest for constitutional order in four of our member states. On January the 28th, the newly formed Alliance of Sahel, made up of Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso, announced withdrawal from the bloc and a plan to create a confederation. The alliance also plans to launch a joint currency known as the Sahel. It's not clear whether lifting the sanctions would change those plans. Timothy Obiezu, Fioe News, Abuja, Nigeria. The West African regional bloc ECOWAS says it will lift sanctions it imposed on Niger following the overthrow of the government there. The decision came after regional leaders met in Nigeria's capital Abuja Saturday to find solutions to the political challenges facing the region. Observers say lifting sanctions on Niger undermines the regional bloc's core policy of zero tolerance of the forceful overthrow of a legitimately elected government. And critics say ECOWAS has remained silent while some leaders amend constitutions to seek additional terms when their mandate expires. For analysis of the decision to lift sanctions on Niger, I reach Christopher Ogumodede. He is a consultant and foreign affairs analyst who specializes in West African politics, security, and foreign relations. I wasn't surprised. It's everything I've seen, um, you know, since the beginning of this whole episode with um, Niger, because really and truly that's what that's where the big breakup in ECOWAS started, has indicated that. Those um, three, the AES, uh, Mali, Niger, and Burkina, weren't going to back down. And everything I've sort of been predicting would happen has been happening in terms of reactions from this party and that party. So to hear that ECOWAS uh, decided to drop sanctions because those three countries said they were leaving ECOWAS was not a surprise. I expected it. Some people were saying it appears to be an appeasement move by ECOWAS after these three countries decided to initiate the process of leaving the regional bloc. Your thoughts? That's one way of viewing the issue. And, you know, I can understand why some people would be inclined to view the issue through that prism of, you know, appeasement for the simple reason that uh, all of the steps that ECOWAS has um, taken toward 
keeping those three um, states, Mali, Nigeria, and Burkina, within the uh, community since they announced that they were going to withdraw from ECOWAS has been essentially designed to keep them in-house, you know, give them what they want just to ensure that they would stay. But then my counter to that is, well, what other choices did ECOWAS have, right? You know, they tried sanctions, it didn't work. They tried threat of military force, it didn't work. You know, they've tried condemnation, it didn't work. So what else do you think will work at this point? You know, nearly all the tools of diplomacy and statecraft have been tried and they did not work. And, you know, again, there are reasons as to why that happened. You know, the structural forces, you know, involved favored the, you know, Niger and those of um, Burkina and Mali. So I'm not sure that ECOWAS had too many other cards to play. You know, so I think keeping them in-house, yes, you might call it appeasement, but I would personally say it's ECOWAS reading the writing on the wall that, you know, we, there's not much else we can do but to work with the, the government we have there and try to make the best of what is a bad situation. What do you say to those who think that or say that this move by ECOWAS will encourage more military adventures in the sub-region, particularly with concerns about the slide in democracy in these countries in West Africa? The slide of democracy to begin with did not start with military governance. I'm always very uh, keen to uh, point that out. That, you know, the slide with democracy started with civilian leaders who, you know, change constitutions to get their turns, run very fraudulent elections, you know, to ensure that they win, you know, imprison their political rivals, kill some of them, uh, abuse human rights, all of the motley crew of things that are harmful to democracy. Civilian leaders did all of that. They were the ones who started all of this. But, you know, people, there is only so much people will tolerate when living conditions are good and living conditions in the sub-region have not been good. So they created an opportunity for uh, people for, you know, power grabs of all kinds. And in my view, all of the things I listed, but particularly rigging elections and, you know, extra constitutional third terms are civilian coups. So they normalized after what we assumed was a period where military coups were out of phase and all of that. They brought all those things back. So I tend to even reject the framing that, oh, military coups, I return to, you know, the law of the jungle and all of that. And my argument always has been that if that is true, it started with civilian leaders who, you know, opened the floor for that kind of thing. But in any case... I don't think that um, military coups and all of these things, you know, I don't think um, military forces are waiting on ECOWAS to make a decision either way as to what to do. If the conditions are right for a military takeover in any country in West Africa or even the continent or even the world, really, military government will take over. They don't need any extra, you know, coups tend to be local affairs is what I'm trying to say. If the conditions are favorable for them, they will happen. It's now down to ECOWAS to work with, you know, governments and other partners in the region to ensure that, you know, the conditions that give rise to coups need to be uh, ameliorated. Where do you see the working or engagement of ECOWAS and these member countries led by military leaders going from here following the decision to lift sanctions? The next step, whatever that step is, will be painful, will be protracted. It will essentially mean ECOWAS come to terms with the fact that in those three countries, you know, military governments 
are likely there to stay for some time, you know, with pending what they can agree to in terms of the transition and all of these things. It is time for Ecowas to put up or shut up as far as upholding, you know, the norms that govern and inform its protocols on, you know, uh, unconstitutional changes of government and all of that. Because, as I say, when you fail to do all of those things, well, you give rise to the conditions that allow for military coups to even become a notion in, in the first place. So it's time for ECOWAS and its member states to sit down and do the hard work of thinking about a way to actually govern coherently. Christopher Ogumodede is a consultant and foreign affairs analyst who specializes in West African politics, security and foreign relations. He spoke with me from the Senegalese capital, Dakar. The Botswana High Court has ruled that former President Seresa Kama Ian Kama is a fugitive from justice. The ruling effectively denies the former president's efforts to stop his prosecution for charges including illegal possession of firearms and money laundering. Kama had petitioned the court contending that the charges against him, in his own words, are malicious and politically motivated. The former president is in self-imposed exile since October 2021, saying he fears for his life. You know that Mac is the lead defense attorney for former President Kama. He tells me that he will appeal against the High Court's ruling. Obviously, um, I will be a bit handicapped to to fully discuss the matter now. The reason being that uh, we have taken a, a view that we should appeal the, the judgment to the Court of Appeal. And, and such an appeal is as of right. So we, we, we want to exercise that right to appeal it to the Court of Appeal. So that, that is the position we have taken. What are the chances of success? We believe we, believe we should give it a shot. We believe that uh, uh, it's worth it. And, uh, and that's what we want to do. Because uh, we believe we, 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 he, he has a strong case on the merits. So that's why we want to take it on, on appeal. In your submission, you said that the charges he faces are political and maliciously motivated. That was dismissed by the court. But do you think the case you made in court was strong enough? We believe in it. We believe so. Um, so that is why we have decided that we should take it on, on appeal. But like I say, that is just my preliminary review. I haven't finalized that with him. What are the other legal remedies for him to take based on this court's decision? Well, well, obviously the the the, the other option, well, which is also open, I wish we have discussed, is, is obviously uh, to face the criminal trial, which we believe, which we believe that the charges are trumped up because all these license, all these firearms are licensed. Wrong law, rightly, it does not matter. But they're licensed. Because, you see, if, 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 they were, if the licensing authority, by mistake, licensed the firearms, that's a different ballgame. It, it doesn't mean that the, the former president has committed a crime. Certainly not. Certainly not. But, but at least there are valid licenses and registration certificates for these firearms issued by the rightful authority. But what do you say to critics who say that as a former president, 
and who is an army general, he should be more versed or more hands-on than what is perceived to have happened. <laughs> My response is this. When, when a particular individual or a certain organization is charged with the responsibility of, uh, of, of, of issuing licenses, say, so for example, a city council, you apply for a license to operate a butchery, a, 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 a shop, and, and you are issued with a license. Whether you should not have been issued with a license because you did not produce A or B is, is another thing. As long as you hold a valid license, what, what they are supposed to do is to have that license revoked or to approach court to have the license or the decision to have the license, to issue the license set aside. That, that is the proper thing to do. But you cannot say A was issued with a license, he should not be having that license, so therefore he, he is the one who committed an offence. How can that be? How can that be? Well, Mark, it, it appears that the court is displeased that the former president did not make himself available to the court during this process. For the last two years, the court frowns or appears to have frowned on his decision not to appear in court, just to be represented by lawyers, including yourself. How do you respond to that? Well, well that might be the case. Like I say, we, 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 we want to appeal this decision, so I don't want to comment too much on it. But obviously, uh, if the court felt that way, we accept that. That, that is the judge's position. But the former president has a request to the Court of Appeal he can go there and open up his case and argue that the High Court was wrong. So that's what we wanted to do. You know that Mark is the lead defense attorney for former Botswana President Seresa Kama, Ian Kama. He spoke with me from the Botswana capital, Habaruni. In Zambia, the leader of the opposition New Heritage Party is coming under criticism after joining an opposition coalition. This after Madame Chishala Kateka joined forces with senior opposition figures, including former President Edgar Lungu, to form an umbrella group called the United Kwacha Alliance. The representatives of the group say the goal is to wrestle power from the governing United Party for National Development, or UPND. But critics say they find it odd that Kateka would join forces with the former president, whom they accuse of failing to meet the aspirations of the people, which led to his defeat in the last election. I reached Madame Chishala Kateka and began by asking her the reason for joining the United Kwacha Alliance. The reason that we have decided to form an alliance is the fact that there are certain things that need to be done for the Zambian people, which haven't been done before. Uh, we want to look at policy issues that will make a difference for Zambians. And because of that, we need to be in a position to actually uh, enforce those policies. And we can't, we can't do that if we are in the opposition. We really need to get into government in order to, um, to do what we need to do for the Zambians. Madam Kateka, the question that we have heard critics say is that how come Madam Kateka, who says she wants to work for the interests of the people of Zambia, join forces with this same patriotic front who really messed up the situation and has made Zambia to be where it is now? 
How do you join forces with them? Sure. They are. When you look at um, the narrative that was there before the elections, it was really the fact that these people messed up the economy. Now, when you look at what has happened after the election, you'll find that spread a lot of propaganda, and we find that there was quite a bit of that before. And what has happened after the election woke some of us up to the fact that the current government wanted so much to be in power that they did quite a bit of that. Uh, and that's why you find that they, they have not even managed to um, successfully take the previous party um, into, you know, the prisons are, are not full in accordance with what they say would happen. When you talk about the prison not being full, I understand a lot of former officials of the Patriotic Front Administration have various corruption cases before the court, going through the legal process, which experts say should be the normal process. So they are not necessarily free. So you can't say they argue that uh, the prisons oh. are not full of them. Sure. The, the, so what we have been seeing, Peter, is the fact that there is a lot of uh, drama around when they arrest these guys. Uh, so there was a lady who was in the police service who, who has been taken to, to prison for three years. But relative to what we are talking about, the numbers are, are very few of those that are, are actually being prosecuted. And what has been happening is they'll, they'll go to somebody and say, oh, we've grabbed such and such property from this person, um, property uh, suspected to be stolen, then a few days later they give back to them. So one of the things that Zambians are discontent with is the fact that we are not seeing these uh, prosecutions. Uh, are coming to fruition. You understand? There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of talking about, oh, we are going to do this, these thieves, you know. But then nothing is really happening much. Madam Kataka, what do you say to critics who are saying that all this has tribalism written all over it and that majority of the biggest ethnic groups are trying to come together as in an opposition saying that this is the best way to go, knowing very well that all you are doing, they said, is tribal politics one-on-one. -on -one. How do you respond to that? Sure. Um, that's bold dash for the simple reason that, so Zambia has got 10 provinces, and then there are three provinces which really, really supported the UPND. And now we've got two of the political parties that are from that region. So how does that become tribalism? Um, Peter, you need to be very aware that, that uh, the current government is not happy with us setting up this coalition. Uh, but as you know, it's very difficult to win an election without going into a coalition. But the UPND government welcomed the formation of the opposition coalition, saying that this will uh, help Zambia's democracy. So My goodness. We've had such pushback from their, their people. So when you say they welcome them, I don't know what you mean. 
We've had such pushback from these guys. Madam Chishala Kateka is the leader of the opposition New Heritage Party. She spoke with me from the Zambian capital, Lusaka. This is the Voice of America, and you are listening to Nightline Africa. I'm your host, Peter Clote, in Washington. Coming up in the second half of Nightline Africa, a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs, and music from our African collection. But first. Ugandans will go to the polls to elect a new leader in a general election scheduled for 2026. President Yuweri Museveni, who has been in power since 1986, is expected to seek re-election. Political observers say he faces stiff competition from several opposition candidates, including popular parliamentarian Robert Chagulani, also known as Bobby Wine, who is the leader of the National Unity Platform, or NUP. In a recent opinion piece, which is generating debate in Uganda, attorney Tony Tumukunde contends that the 79-year-old President Museveni will win faintly in the 2026 presidential contest. But opposition groups say the column appears to be a propaganda effort to help the president's electoral prospect. To learn more about his analysis of the scheduled 2026 presidential contest, I reach attorney Tony Tumukunde. He is the founding partner at the law firm MS Tumukunde and co-advocates. My analysis is based on, uh, first and foremost, the disorganization that the strongest opposition party is now having, which I think will also prevail up to 2026, considering the fact that the disruptions, the distractions, the disorganizations are now within the strongest camps of the opposition, and that is within uh, the central part of the region, which uh, strongly opposed President Museveni. And you well know that if there is any disorganization in the opposition, it's greater chance for the ruling government. That's one. But also... Uh, with the restructures that uh, the president has made within uh, uh, the UPDF setup, you realize that he's probably preparing for something greater during the elections, where people have been throwing all the human rights abuses, uh, all uh, the missing persons offenses towards either the army or the president. Now he has swept away all the responsibilities of his hands to other offices. The other thing I have also opined in my article, the fact that the president, considering the fact that he's going now to compete with a young generation that is not well versed with the political landscape and uh, uh, political difficulties of the nation, it also gives him a higher scorecard rate. We understand the NUP has begun restructuring to put it house together to be better prepared for the next election in 2026. And FDC, the biggest opposition party, like you said, uh, seem to be trying to work things out. So if there is a coalition between these two, you think they still uh, will not be able to pose a significant threat to President Museveni's uh, re-election bid? Peter, as of yesterday, you will understand that FDC was not even sure as to whether it will stay as FDC. There are two factions. There is the original FDC at Najana Nkumbi. There is another faction at Katonga. They were not sure as to whether the FDC will come as FDC itself or a pressure group. But also, Peter, you will agree with me, the introduction of the Patriotic League 
of Uganda, which belongs to the first son of the president. The mere fact that they are also considering registering a political party, and you know that only at the launch of the party you had 53 members of the ruling government. So it means if the president is coming as the president again in the election, and his son comes as probably, his son might not actually also come, but his party might, rep might send in representatives in parliament. That means you're competing with over 60 people fighting for positions uh, from the ruling government, but also from the opposition. You'll agree with me that he has fished some people from the opposition. General Muhoz has fished some people from the opposition and at the same time is fishing people from his father's political party. So it, 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 there is a division in the number of votes that probably will happen. And to me, I think that is what the president is looking at, that if people can come in the patriotic league, I will not have actually a lot of opposition. President Museveni has often said that he will crush the entire opposition, usually during elections. Uh, but some people are also saying that articles or opinions like yours feel like a trial balloon by the NRM uh, to see how the mood of the country is. And by so doing, they are able to carry out their election plan, some say even to an extent of rigging. Uh, why do you think this is not so? Uh, I, I will agree with you. The president has often said he will crush the opposition. He has done so. As, as, as to the extent of crush, I don't know whether it is, it's been physical or it's been buying out the opposition people, or it's been sweet-talking them, the crushing, the method he uses. I will tell you that he uses all methods like any other African president who wants actually not to lose power. He, we, we've seen him get a lot of people from the uh, opposition to his side. Probably you know very well that the Minister of Justice and Constitutional Affairs is now leading a political party in Uganda. We have seen various ministers now from the opposition being made ministers in the ruling cabinet. And, and, and that is one way of crushing the... It's one way of crushing the opposition. But also, uh, you will agree with me that he has high-handedly also crushed the opposition. I will not, I will not uh, fear to say that African presidents that want to maintain power at all costs will do everything to maintain themselves in the seat, whether it's violence, whether it is uh, by use of gun, imprisonment. That is the African nature of all African presidents. That's what they believe in. And I want to tell you that even towards 2026 elections, you realize that these things will happen. And that is what my article is telling people, that the nature of the president will not change. Attorney Tony Tumukunde is the founding partner of the law firm MS Tumukunde and co-advocates. He spoke with me from the Ugandan capital, Kampala. Supporters of Malawi's main opposition Democratic Progressive Party were hurt and their cars vandalized Saturday in Malawi's capital, Ilungwe, when suspected armed supporters aligned with the governing Malawi Congress Party, or MCP, attacked their street parade. For VOA, Lamek Masina reports from the Malawian commercial capital, Blantyre, MCP officials deny involvement in the fracas. Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP officials, say they go the street parade was to make people aware of the importance of registering for the 2025 election and obtaining a national ID. However, the event was interrupted when witnesses say a truck of loaded masked men holding machetes and other weapons near a gas station where DBP supporters gathered. DBP officials say about 25 supporters 
sustained injuries and were rushed to Kamuzu Central Hospital for treatment. Their conditions were not immediately available. The suspects also damaged more than 10 cars owned by TPP supporters, some of them having their tyres stolen. Levi Wemba is the Deputy National Director for Operations at the DPP, the part of former President Peter Mutalika. He says the suspects are supporters of the main governing Malawi Congress party of President Lazarus Chakwera. President Lazarus Chakwera, I should take my word. You will not bring dictatorship in this country. You will not bring anarchy in this country. You will not bring, you will not bring one party state in this country. Malawi has voted for much party democracy in 1994. We are gathered to defend our country. Political analysts say the incident is a bad sign for the political campaign period, which is expected to start in September for the next year's elections. This is the second time in a month DPP supporters faced intimidation by suspected MCP supporters. On February 14, DPP lawmakers called off planned vigils at Malawi's parliament after spotting a group of MCP supporters who carried equipment that would be used as weapons, allegedly pretending to work in areas near where the lawmakers had gathered. MCP spokesperson Ezekiel Shumoma told VOA that his party is peaceful and is not responsible for the violence at the DPP's street parade. He declined to explain more, saying his party will issue a statement on the incident. Lamek Masina, VOA News. U.S. President Joe Biden has announced 500 new sanctions on Russia as the world marks two years since Moscow invaded Ukraine. Biden said the sanctions will target Russia's war machine, including weapons procurement, and will also target individuals involved in the imprisonment and death of prominent Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny one week ago. Viewer's senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sain reports. Ukraine's defense forces continue to try to repel Russia's invading army. On Friday, President Joe Biden marked the second anniversary of Russia's invasion by announcing sanctions on 500 individuals and entities linked to the invasion and the death in a Russian prison of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He said Russian President Vladimir Putin badly miscalculated the courage of the people of Ukraine. Putin believed he could easily bend the will and break the resolve of the free people of Ukraine, that he could roll into Ukraine and he would roll over them. Two years later, he remains wrong. Kiev is still standing, Ukraine is still free, and the people of Ukraine remain unbowed and unbroken in the face of Putin's vigorous onslaught. Biden said he met with Navalny's widow and daughter Thursday in California and assured them he will make sure Putin pays a price for what he termed Russian aggression abroad and repression at home. During a visit to Argentina, Secretary of State Antony Blinken answered a question from Voice of America, saying he believes sanctions will have a long-term impact on Russia's ability to modernize its economy, military, and energy sector. And Blinken did not forget Navalny. We're also taking action against three individuals, specifically in connection with the death of Alexei Navalny. 
uh, the prison warden, the regional prison head, the deputy director of the Federal Penitentiary Service. In Moscow, Putin took part in a Defender of the Fatherland Day patriotic ceremony and hailed what he termed the authentic heroes fighting in Ukraine. Some observers say that the sudden death of Navalny in Russian custody reveals that Putin is vulnerable. I don't think that he would have murdered Alexei Navalny if he was feeling confident. I think that's the sign of a man who's feeling scared. And Putin is scared of, of losing power because if he lose, loses power, he dies. Russia says Navalny died of natural causes. Browder welcomed the new set of sanctions on Moscow, but he said the Kremlin still enjoys one major source of revenue. So as long as Russia continue to sell their oil, they'll be able to continue buying missiles and bullets and pay for soldiers, and the war will carry on. And we haven't been able to get our head around that. And that's, that is the elephant in the room. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer arrived in Ukraine on Friday with a group of senators to try to reassure Ukrainians that the U.S. Congress will deliver another round of U.S. aid, even as a package that would provide $60 billion to Kyiv is stalled in the Republican-controlled U.S. House of Representatives. Cindy Sane, VOA News. Now let's take a closer look at Africa, the problems, the prospects in time of conflict, in time of peace. Here's one man's point of view with Dr. James Jonah, former UN Under Secretary General for Political Affairs. Hello, Dr. Jonah. Good evening, Africa. The world is out of joint. And in present circumstances, one could say that does not exist a just and stable world order. The governments of the people of the global south put place their faith and trust on the multilateral arrangement provided by the United Nations Charter. With respect to the global north rule-based world order, the global south has little confidence in it because it is too selective in its application. It is incomprehensible that the leadership of the global community could sit idle by and fail to meet the agony of the people of Palestine, not only in Gaza, but in the West Bank. The problem is that the Security Council, which has the primary responsibility to help maintain international peace and security, has failed to carry out their responsibility. It does not mean that all the permanent members are doing that. But the reality, even if vetoes are used in an unfair way, the United Nations at this moment is not able to provide to the Global South the collective security promises that are inscribed on the Charter. When you listen to some of the statements made before the International Court of Justice last week, 52 plus nations, one is struck by the fact that the overwhelming majority of states could say confidently that the occupation of Palestinian territory is illegal. 
and that as the court itself has pronounced before, as well as the Security Council, settlements are also illegal. Yet, two permanent members told the ICJ that the occupation is not legal. And then we heard from the UK responsibility before the courts that the courts, which is the legal arm of the United Nations, that the courts should not make rulings that could interfere with quote-unquote delicate negotiations. It's stunning. What do they want the people of the global south to think? They try to solve this problem, and they are told again and again in the Security Council that it is preferable to have delicate negotiation outside the Security Council. What should be clearly understood is that within the global South community, whole array of highly competent diplomats who have a good track record in conducting delicate negotiations. But while things have been taken outside of the Security Council in such a negotiation, the people have been killed every day in Gaza, average of 100 plus. And today you have 300,000 civilian Palestinians having been killed. And a large proportion of that are women and children. How long will it last? The last time the Security Council met to adopt a resolution, the world was assured that there would be more humanitarian assistance in the Gaza and there will be progress in negotiation. Nothing has happened. And yet we follow a scenario that every week by midweek we are hearing from the media, hopeful discussion of progress in the negotiation. By the end of the week, they are saying senior officials are meeting either the Paris, or Doha, or the Cairo. Nothing moves. And this is very, very dangerous for the people of the Global South. If they come to the conclusion, as some have done, that they could get no protection from the multilateral agency in which they put the trust, what do they do? Some have decided on their own, like North Korea, that they cannot rely on the United Nations because they believe their enemies are in control. And what have they done? They have opted for the nuclear option even though this will cost the people hunger. And now they say, we have it. We have the nuclear power to defend ourselves. There are also some in the global south, like India, Pakistan, and others, who never believed in the argument of the non-proliferation treaty, that the major powers will disarm and urging people in the global south not to resort to nuclear weapons. So this is the danger with the delay, with no help going to Gaza and the West Bank, that people will say, look, don't depend on the Security Council of the United Nations, because they pass resolution in the General Assembly. And then the media will be quick to say, oh, it's not binding. And even when the courts gave its provisional order, some in the media will say, no, 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 it's not binding. And they were wrong, of course. So this is what is the dilemma for the Global South. And unless those responsible 
for the collective responsibility of security in the global community may drive many people to seek options which will not be palatable to the maintenance of peace and security in the world. I thank you. That was one man's point of view, a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs. And it's Sunday on Nightline Africa. This is the time we get to relax and reflect a flashback with music from the continent. Listen, I want to make mine. As soon as you shake your bagazi. I want to make my baby shake your bagazi. Baby, they give me banana. Yeah, baby, girl, they make I want to shake the banana. Oh, baby, come and give me a lantern. Give me banana. Oh, ah, yeah. Baby, shake your banana. Shake it, I will give it to Nana. Now you want me, I'll go love you. Oh, my sexy guana. Come shake it to the best line now. Them I call me designer. Come shake it to the best line now. Them I call me the Dance, I will put a new book. You want me 
our Sunday music spot. Hope you enjoyed the music from Nightline Africa here at the English to Africa service of the Voice of America in Washington.
Nightline Africa comes to you from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. I hope you enjoy the program tonight. As you know, by now we are on air on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC. From the Nightline Africa team, including producer Kwame Ofori and engineer Justin Thwaite, we say a big thank you for joining us. I remember as the elders say, only a stone that glitters attracts the attention of the passerby. I'm your host, Peter Clote in Washington. Good evening, Africa. Thank you.